By way of introduction, again, let me say that the Sermon on the Mount is one of the most spectacular pieces of Christian literature because we hear, here we see Jesus, the King, who does not give His law through a prophet like Moses, but we see Him come down incarnate, set up on the mountain, and teach us the principles of His kingdom. Now, when we come to the last part of these three chapters on the Sermon on the Mount, there is a sense of eternity. There is a sense of a warning that is growing as we read through the text. We realize that Jesus is not merely teaching us life principles, things that we can apply to our life so that we might have a good life here on this planet. But he's talking to us about something far greater. He's talking to you about the difference between heaven and hell. You see, I know you come together in a thing like this and it's, it's a lot of fun and you can meet other Christians and you can be with friends. And I understand the importance of that and I rejoice in it. But I also want you to take this time to think about something. Do you realize that at this very moment, you may be on the road to glory. At this very moment, you may be on the road to hell. Now, I know that you're a part maybe of some Christian organization or maybe you go to a church, but I want to tell you something. In the eyes of God, that means nothing. That is no validation whatsoever of a Christian life. And there are so many people today in America that are absolutely, that are completely deceived. Not only those who sit in the, sit in the pew, but also those who stand in a pulpit that do not know God, they do not know Christ, they do not understand the gospel. They've never experienced the new life, the life eternal and the life abundant that is in Jesus Christ. They've simply affirmed a creed. They've simply prayed a prayer. They've simply joined some moral or ethical group. And they find community there, but they do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that is evidenced by a changed and changing life. Now, I'm talking about some of you. I cannot assume that every person in this building is Christian. That would be absolutely absurd. It would go against statistics. It would go against Scripture. It would go against our own experience of what we know. That we live in a country that basically calls itself Christian and is about as far from Christian as it can get. What does it mean to be truly Christian? It means to recognize that you are fundamentally wrong about everything. And that you empty yourself of all your so-called knowledge of reality, that you empty yourself of everything you think of when you think about your virtue and your merit and your worth, you realize that all of it is rubbish, that God is holy, that we are not, but that Christ died on that tree, that His sacrifice made atonement for our sin, and that we can find life only in Him. That kind of news, when it's grabbed by your mind, makes you desperate. This Christianity thing is not something that I, I do. It's not some part of 
my life. It is my life. Apart from Christ, you have nothing. Nothing. In the mind of God, His Son is everything. And if you would have the mind of God, Christ would be everything to you. Now, I want us to look again in verse 13. He says, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. In summary, what is he saying? There's not a multiple choice answer. For heaven. There is only one way to heaven, and that is through the person and work of God's son, Jesus of Nazareth. And that is the very thing that makes Christianity so despised in the world. Remember what I told you, that if we would only change one article, if we would only say Jesus is a Savior, instead of Jesus is the Savior, the entire world would love us. The devil himself would love us. But you see, Jesus is not one Savior among many. He's not a God among a pantheon of gods. He is the only true God, the only true revelation of God, the only true Savior. Apart from Him, there's nothing. Now again, most evangelicals will happily accept that truth. And they will say, Jesus is the only way. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. The problem is they forget about verse 14. Which says, for the gate is small. We've already spoken about that. The gate is small. And the way is narrow that leads to life. Now, listen to me. Please understand what I'm trying to tell you here. Anyone comes to you with the idea of a works salvation, I want you to know they're, they're a heretic. They're a false prophet. It's blasphemous. We are not saved by faith plus works. We are not saved by faith plus anything. We are saved by repentance and faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are justified by faith alone and not of works, lest any man should boast. But here's what, you, here's what your generation and the generation preceding you of American Christians has forgotten about. Those who have believed have been regenerated by the Spirit of God. They have become new creatures. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things are new again. And as a new creature with a new nature, you have new affections. And those new affections drive you to follow Christ. And so just like we explained in the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul and the teachings of James, what do we have? Salvation is by faith alone, but the evidence that you have believed unto salvation. Now we have to be very careful here with our use of the tense and the verbs. It's very popular and, and it's biblical to say, when I met Jesus Christ, my life changed. Yes. And not completely. The better language is the day I met Jesus Christ, my life fundamentally, fundamentally and radically changed and continues in the process of changing. You see, the evidence that you repented unto salvation a few years ago, supposedly, is that you're still repenting today. 
The evidence that you believed unto salvation a few years ago is you are still believing today and you will go on repenting and go on believing because he who began a good work in you will finish it. And what Jesus is saying here is the evidence that you have passed through the narrow gate is that you're walking in the narrow way. The two things go together. It is faith that brings us through the gate. Those who have believed have been radically regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are new creatures. And as new creatures, they are going to walk a different way. Dear Dr. Spurgeon from the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London many years ago used to give this illustration. It's a marvelous illustration. What happens when a man is saved? See, you were brought up in a generation where basically salvation or being born again even is, I made my decision. I made a decision. My dear friend, listen to me. Being born again is a reference to the doctrine of regeneration. To regenerate, to make alive, to, to rebirth, to recreate. I would submit to you this. The power of God that is manifested in the salvation of one person exceeds the demonstration of the power of God in the very creation of the universe because God created the word the world ex nihilo out of nothing when he saves a man he re re recreates a mass of depraved vile fallen humanity and turns it into a son and a daughter Ezekiel says it this way God in his new covenant promises says, behold, I'm going to do a work. I will take out your heart of stone. That means your heart that was dead to me, that could not respond to divine stimuli. I will take out your heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh is a living heart that can respond, desires to respond to God. If you have been born again, if you truly believe in Christ, you have been given a new nature with new affections that desires to respond to God. But if you made some decision in some evangelistic campaign or in your church or whatever else, and your life never changed and is not changing, then you have no evidence to stand on to ever say that you were born again. Dr. Spurgeon used to say this. Imagine that we had a, a pig at the back of the auditorium. And then up here, I had a plate of the finest food in Nebraska, whatever that may be. Corn, possibly. <laughs> the finest food in Nebraska. But over here, I had just a bucket of, of garbage. And I looked up and I told the people who were holding back the pig, loose him and let him go. The pig runs for me. Now, is he going to go for the plate of fine food or is he going to go for the plate of garbage? He's going to go for the plate of garbage. Why is he going for the plate of garbage? He is a pig. That's what pigs do. It's his nature. He sticks his head in that bucket and he eats filth. He eats garbage. And he is not ashamed of you witnessing his act. But let's say that in one second, I have the power to change that pig into a man. What's going to happen? There are some things um, that a pig can eat that a man can not eat. 
The very thing that he was delighting in, when I turn him into a man, it's going to repulse him. He's going to hate it. He's going to despise it. The food he was gobbling down, he is literally going to rip his head out of that bucket and he's going to throw it up. And then he's going to turn around and see you seeing him and he's going to be ashamed. I just described your conversion. I just described your conversion. That men, because of their sinful natures, are driven by sinful passions that drive them to wickedness, to the doing of evil. But the doctrine of regeneration is when God comes and changes your heart. And with that changed heart, and this is very, very important, especially if you read the Puritans or Jonathan Edwards, this is extremely important to understanding salvation. When God changes your nature, because your nature changes, your affections change. You see, we, hear, we always hear this debate in, in theology and even among high school students and college students today, the idea of free will. Well, the first thing you need to understand is this. Free will is an attribute of God that is not communicated to men. There is, in essence, a sense in which no man is free. God is the only one who is free because he is not coerced or manipulated by anything outside of himself. You're coerced and manipulated by everything outside of yourself. Culture, raising, absolutely everything. But, but years ago, a man by the name of Martin Luther wrote a book, many years ago, before you were born. He wrote a book called Bondage of the Will. And what he's saying in this book is simply this. Man is free. Man has a free will, in a sense. The only problem is he doesn't have a good will. He's free to do what he desires, but all his desires are evil because his heart is evil. And so man is in bondage, his will is, but it's in bondage to his own wicked affections from which he cannot break free. That's why men outside of this building and all tonight and throughout the world will do wicked, horrible, shameless, shameful things. They're doing them freely, aren't they? They're even delighting in them, but they're not free. They're in bondage to their wicked passions which flow from their deceitful heart. Remember what Jesus said? Out of the heart. All these things. And what is the doctrine of regeneration? The doctrine of regeneration is that the Spirit of God changes your nature. This is not biblical poetry. This is not cliche written on the back of a Christian t-shirt. This is truth. It is reality. When God saves a man, woman, or child, He changes their nature. That's why it says they are a new creature. Did, did you ever wonder why the book of Genesis begins with in the beginning? And why the book of the Gospel of John begins with in the beginning? Because the incarnation of John represents the beginning of the new creation. The incarnation of Christ represents the beginning of the new creation. That Christ is coming to make all things new. That Christ is coming not to just teach you some principles. He is coming to die on the cross so that a just God might justify you and still be just. He's reconciled all things to Himself now through His death on the cross and made it possible for God to demonstrate His benevolence to you in sending His Spirit to regenerate your heart, to make you a new creature. And as a new creature, you have new and righteous affections that want to follow Christ. That's what it means to be born again. 
Now the problem with that is although we have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and we have become new creatures, there is still an element in us called the flesh which theologically is very difficult to define. All we know is there is some aspect still in us that is unredeemed that fights against the new nature and the great work that God has done and is doing in us. But the Bible also says that the Christian who's truly Christian will fight that battle and by God's grace will win that battle and will persevere because he who began a good work will finish it. Now, I said all that theologically to get us to the part about this narrow way. Again, if anyone comes to you and tells you that salvation is by faith and works, they are wrong. That's a dreadful doctrine. Don't believe it. But the idea that you need to see here is that the evidence of faith and this regenerating work of God is that you're going to live a different way. And that different way is called a narrow way for two reasons. One, it is ethically narrow. What do I mean by that? It's marked out by the commandments of Christ. If there was a way of describing even true Christians in the West today, it would be this. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Do you realize that that's you? How many of you have determined? Uh, how many of you who are Christians have studied the scripture to determine what God desires of you with regard to your parents? And you are applying those truths right now. Oh, if not, then you're doing what is right in your own eyes. How many of you have gone to Scripture to ask how God wants you to dress? Or what God wants you to listen to and not listen to? The things in which God wants you to participate and not participate. You haven't done that, haven't you? have you? And so even those of you who are Christians, it could rightly be said of you, you do what is right in your own eyes. Or you just follow a form of Christianity that also does what is right in its own eyes. We are a unique culture in church history because we've come to believe that the thing that we ought to do is be as much like the world as possible and still be Christian. As a matter of fact, we let the world determine how we're going to talk, walk, dress, what we're going to listen to. Even Christian music now listens to secular music to determine how they ought to do their Christian music. But the Bible says those who believe in Christ will walk in the narrow way, and that way is marked out by His commands, His precepts, His wisdom. We are not saved by obeying these things, but the renewed heart wants to be pleasing to God and so therefore renews its mind in the word of God and finds out what God wants. Not a people of cliche. Radical for Jesus doesn't mean you wear a Christian t-shirt or you're a part of some athletic organization that represents Christ. Radical for Jesus is discovering what his will is in the word of God and then recognizing those who are hearers of the word are not blessed, but those who are doers of the word are blessed. Your relationships with the opposite sex. Have you gone into scripture and studied for days, weeks, months to find out what that's supposed to look like? No, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They believe in Jesus and follow the world. That is not what Christ is teaching here. He comes down and basically says, I am the one greater than Moses. I am the rabbi. I am God's final word. That's why God points to his son and says, hear ye him. If you believe in him, it is required of thee to listen to him. 
and not do what is right in your own eyes. Now this narrow way, he says, enter in. Now this is, this is very difficult to explain. It is, because you have to be so careful. We are saved by faith alone. But here, I want you to think about the first century Christian for a moment. I've heard evangelists say something horrible. Many of them. They'll say, you need to get saved because getting saved is about the easiest thing you could possibly do. According to whom? American Christianity. But I want you to think about this. A young Jewish man in the first century whose, whose family is completely tied with the synagogue, tied with the temple, everything else, has heard the claims about Jesus who was crucified by his own people as a blasphemer and a traitor. He died upon a cross and therefore is cursed of God and cannot be the Messiah. Also, the priest and the synagogue rulers have let everyone know anyone who believes in him and follows him and obeys him are going to be put out of the temple and the synagogue, have no privy anymore to the temple rites, and their parents are going to disown them. Now tell that boy that the easiest thing he could ever do is get saved. It's going to cost him everything. Then go with me to the Sudan. Go with me to Indonesia. Go with me to China. Go with me to India. Go with me to Nepal. And ask those people. Go with me to Egypt. I just returned from there. Go with me to the underground church and tell those people the easiest thing you could ever do is accept Jesus as your Savior. They're hiding in underground churches. I was interviewing one pastor that I thought that we might ought to work with. And I asked another brother who's a dear friend of mine in Egypt. I said, how do we know that this man is truly faithful to Christ? And he said, you see the mark on his head? I said, yeah. He said, the Muslims tried to stick a knife in his brain because of his confession of Jesus Christ. I said, okay, that's enough. You see, this whole idea, why? We have taken Christianity and said this. Oh, to be a Christian, all you got to do is pray this prayer and ask Jesus into your heart. It's a done deal. No. Jesus says, enter in. In another place, in both Luke and Matthew, he talks about the kingdom of God advances forcefully and the violent take it by force. That the only ones who enter into the kingdom are the ones who are forceful to enter in. That is so different than the picture that's been painted to you. And what does it mean? It doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that the only ones who come into the kingdom are the ones who have this John Wayne type of, of strength of will and discipline. And by their discipline and their strength of will, they enter in because they're so strong. That's not what it's saying. It's saying this. Several years ago, I was down in Peru. And I decided to go out surfing. Really big waves in Peru. I come across this young man. I hear this gulping. I thought a sea lion had come up next to me. And it was this man on a boogie board out of his mind with fear. The waves were coming in. It was a red flag day. It was horrible. He was terrified. And I thought, i, I got to save him. And then I realized, there's no way. I grab him. He's going to drown us both. I called some other surfers. It took like six men to get this guy in. Now, I want you to think about something. I'm not very strong. The guy who was up here praying, a lot bigger, a lot stronger than me. Okay? I could take him out. 
You want to know how? Put me in water drowning and have him come out to save me. I don't care how big he is. I will be so terrified. And so in knowledge of my own danger that my strength will increase tenfold and I'll kill both of us. That's the type of forcefulness Jesus is talking about. Men and women that realize Jesus alone has the words of life. Jesus alone made the sacrifice. Apart from Jesus, we have nothing. There's no hope. There's no salvation. There's no life. There's nothing apart from Christ. And in seeing your sin and your need, you become so desperate that you violently enter in. No matter who stands in your way, Friends, the loss of material gain doesn't matter. Reputation, nothing. No, I must have him. I must. That's why there's such a great need to preach on sin. So that people would see their desperate condition and rush into the kingdom and cling to Christ. That nothing will stand in your way. To enter in now look what he says. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. Now I want you to see something. And there are few who find it. He talks about a Broadway where many, many would go and would perish. And then he talks about a narrow way that leads to life and he says few will find it. Few. 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 So you don't really understand what I'm telling you. It's like C.S. Lewis's novel in the Chronicles of Narnia, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. They come into this black shadow. And a man is screaming in the water, terrifying. He's so terrified that it terrifies the entire crew. He says, turn back, turn back, turn back. And all these brave sailors, they cry out, what would turn us back? What could be so terrible? cause us to turn back. We're men of adventure. We're men of arms. We're strong. And he says, this is the place where all your dreams come true. And many of them start smiling. Wow. And then he says, you fools. This is the place where all your dreams come true. The men grow pale, pallid almost paralyzed with fear, turn the ship around and do everything they can to get out of that water. When I tell you that few will find it, you're looking and say, yeah, yeah, there's, there's just a few, you know. I'm one of them, of course. Well, you don't understand. Let me put this in its grammatical context. Many people think that what Jesus is saying here is that, well, you know, the big part of the world is made up of secular men who don't even believe in Christ, you know, and Hollywood and media and all these great people all over the world who know nothing about Christ. And there's a few of us who confess Christ's name. And that's what Jesus is talking about. No, that's not at all what Jesus is talking about. Listen to me very carefully. What Jesus is saying. He's not even talking about Hollywood. Or those secular men who deny him or those who are of other religions. Jesus is saying this among those who confess my name. Few of them will find it. 
Now he's talking about you. Among those who confess my name, few will find it. You say, Brother Paul, how can you prove that? I want you to look at something. Go on down in the text and look what he says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse 23, he says, then I will declare to them that called him Lord, Lord, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. See, the whole idea here is Jesus is now going to go in to this teaching, this discourse on fruit. And he's going to connect nature with will and the confession of your faith with the practice of your faith. And what he's basically saying in this entire text after the Sermon on the Mount is this. Listen to me. Those of you who confess my name, you will be known by your fruit. The evidence that your confession is true is the life that you live. And if you have no discernible fruit of a true believing Christian, of a disciple of mine, if your will is not to do the will of the Father, then on the final day, even though you emphatically confessed me to be Lord, what you will hear from me is depart from me. I never knew you. That's what he's saying. Now let's go down and look at the text. He starts off in verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, in the immediate context, he's talking about false prophets. In the wider context, it's applicable to us all. But notice how he begins. He's talking about the outward and the inward. On the outside, what do they look like? They look like sheep. On the outside, on the inside, what do they look like? Ravenous wolves. You could not pick two different or more contrary metaphors. I mean, there's nothing more different than a sheep, than a ravenous wolf. There's nothing more different than a ravenous wolf than a sheep. So he's saying someone on the outside can appear a certain way that is totally contrary to what they really are. Now, what are you on the inside? On the inside, now be honest. Do you have affections for Christ? And don't tell me, yes, think about it. Do you think about Christ? Do you desire Christ? Do you desire His Word? Do you have affections for obedience? What's inside that heart of yours? Because you see, it doesn't matter now. Outwardly, you can be a member of this church or that church. Outwardly, you can be baptized. Outwardly, you can take the ordinances. Outwardly, you can be part of some student Christian organization. Outwardly, you can be all kinds of things. And inwardly, like dead men's bones. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look beautiful. On the inside, you're death. What are you? What are you? And then he goes on in verse 17. So every good tree bears b good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. Now, my, my dear young people, listen to me. This wasn't written because it, it somehow seems poetic. This is a maxim of Scripture. This is a truth of Scripture. And what does it say? Every good tree bears good fruit. In verse 17. But the bad tree bears bad fruit. And what is he saying? 
the nature of the tree is known by the fruit it bears. That's all he's saying. That there is a direct and unbreakable link between the nature of a thing and what the thing produces. There's a direct link between the will of something and the nature of something. I do not know. I do not know what apple bark looks like. But I know an apple tree when I see it. Why? Because of the fruit it bears. I do not know what the root system of an apple tree looks like or a pear tree, but I know both an apple and a pear tree by the fruit that it bears. Although I cannot see the inward working, the inward nature of those trees, I can tell exactly what those trees are by the, by the fruit they produce. In the same way with the Christian, he will be known by his fruit. John MacArthur said this one time, he says, do you want to know what your confession of faith in Jesus Christ is worth? Nothing. Because many will confess him on that day and he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. What is the evidence of genuine faith? Our fruit. In, in verse 16, he says, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? I use this illustration all the time. This is something of an absurdity. It's like Jesus, the carpenter, looking at a bunch of agricultural experts and say, now, you wouldn't give get figs from a thistle, would you? You can just say, well, no, Jesus, you wouldn't. Now, we know you're a carpenter and all that, so you need to understand, if anybody comes to you with thistles and they tell you it's a fig tree, Jesus, either they're lying or they're out of their mind because figs aren't found on thistles. And Jesus looks at them and says, neither are you my disciples if you do not bear the fruit of a disciple. So if you claim to be Christian and yet you bear not the fruit of a Christian, you are either insane or you are a deceiver. Or you are either deceived or a deceiver. I like to use this illustration. Imagine you're going down the road or imagine I'm coming here and I arrive late. And everyone's mad at me because I'm angry and they say, Brother Paul, we know it's not a really big auditorium, but you know, why didn't you show up on time? Do you not appreciate the opportunity to be here? And I say, oh, brothers, forgive me. But when I was driving here, I had a flat tire and I was changing the tire and I wasn't paying attention. And a lug nut went out in the middle of the highway and I ran out and picked it up thoughtlessly. And when I picked it up, I looked and five meters in front of me was a 30 ton logging truck going 120 miles an hour and it ran me over. And that's why I'm late. Now, you would, have to, you would look at me probably and you'd, you'd think to yourself, this man is either mad or he is a liar. You say, Brother Paul, you're either mad or a liar. And I say, why do you say that? You say, Brother Paul, it is absolutely impossible for you to be hit head on by a logging truck weighing 30 tons going 120 miles an hour and you not to be changed. And how is it that so many of you confess Christ and are not changed? So has Christ less power than a logging truck? You've had an encounter with God and you've not been changed. You're not changing. You prayed the prayer and nothing happened, but the misguided preacher pronounced you saved and you're holding on to his wisdom. Well, my friends, that's not wise. How do you know them? By their fruits, by the product of their life. And he goes on and he says, 
in, in verse 18, a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Why do we only use half of this? We'll tell lost people, we'll point them to this text and we'll say, look, a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. You can't do anything to earn your salvation because you're a sinner by nature and you must be changed and a, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. But what we need to realize is a good tree can't bear bad fruit. Now that doesn't mean that when you go to an apple orchard, you won't find a few bad apples on a good tree. But what it does mean is this. If you go to an apple tree and the preponderance of apples that are on there are good and solid and healthy, you know it's a healthy tree. In the same way, the idea of Christian perfectionism is a lie. There's no such thing until you cross over into heaven and are glorified. Will you ever be perfect? But the whole thing that Jesus is teaching is this. If you have been regenerated by the Spirit of God, you cannot go on living a life of rebellion and sin. Why? Because you have become a new creature and you have new affections. And not only that, but the providence of God now governs your life. He is a father to you. And as I taught earlier, he will discipline you and ensure that you keep walking with him. For if you are without discipline, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, you're an illegitimate child. You really don't belong to God. Do you bear good fruit? He goes on and he says this. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice he doesn't say every tree that doesn't believe in me. Because and he doesn't say every tree that doesn't confess me as Lord, he says everyone who doesn't bear good fruit. Now, that's a direct contradiction to American evangelicalism. In which we have countless millions of people who claim to be Christian and at the same time would say, I bear no good fruit. But I'm a Christian. How do you know you're a Christian? Because I prayed that prayer and I asked Jesus to come in. We have turned Christianity and the gospel into it can't even be called a creedalism because a creedalism demands something of intellectual integrity. It's just we've turned the gospel into a cliche. Do you bear good fruit? The fruit of a Christian, because Jesus says every tree that confesses his name but does not bear good fruit, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You know, I hear some of these, I, I very rarely listen to TV preachers. Some of them are, are, are men of integrity. Many of them are heretical and just the enemies of the faith. But I've heard a couple of them say lately, well, you know, when they're asked about why they never teach on hell, this is the most popular answer. Well, we just want to teach on the love of God and we just want to teach the words of Jesus. Now, the person who says that either is ignorant of the scriptures or they're a liar. Why? I challenge you to read through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We find almost nothing about hell. Now, I'd ask you to read through also the historical books of the Old Testament very little on hell. I ask you to go into the wisdom literature, find very little on hell. I ask you to go into the prophets, you will find very little on hell. I ask you to go into the into the epistles of Paul and you will find very few references to hell. 
Almost everything we know about hell comes from Jesus. Do you realize that? Almost everything that we in Christian doctrine know about hell was taught by Jesus. Almost no one else taught on the subject. So for someone to say we don't teach on hell because we just want to teach on the love of Jesus... Jesus taught on hell more than everyone else put together. Maybe since he was God incarnate, he was the only one who could explain heaven and the only one who could explain the terrors of hell. My friend, one day, people will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Even today, hundreds of thousands of people today, today, were cut down by the wrath of God and thrown into hell. Do you realize that? You doubt the judgment and the justice of God on this earth? Then look every day as the wrath of God is manifested every day with the death of countless hundreds of thousands of people that are thrown into hell. And then I'll hear preachers that will say this. If you go to hell, it's because you walk there on your own. God did everything to stop you. God doesn't throw people into hell. People throw people into hell. That is not what Jesus taught. Again, that is not what Jesus taught. Jesus looked at his disciples in the face of the terrifying Roman legions and he looked at his disciples and he says, now disciples, listen to me. You don't fear these guys right here. You don't fear the most powerful, ruthless army that ever walked the planet. Don't fear them. I'll tell you who to fear. The one who, after he's killed your body, can throw you in hell. That's what Jesus taught about his father. Now, I'm not trying to be smart alecky and I'm not trying to be shocking or brash. But is that not what Jesus taught? I mean, think about that, how we twist things around to make them humanistic and sound so nice. But Jesus, he looked at his disciples and he pointed to the Roman legions who were barbaric. And he said, don't fear them because they can only kill your body after torturing it for a while. God can both kill you and throw you into hell. Fear him. Some of you may be shocked, but know this, you're not being shocked at a preacher's interpretation. I'm quoting Jesus verbatim. Now, so he warns and look at this in verse 16, he begins, you will know them by their fruit. And he ends the discussion in verse 20. So then you will know them by their fruits. What is he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us not to fall into the very thing that we have fallen into in Western Christianity. What is that? The idea that you could truly know him and bear no fruit. The idea that you could truly know him and live just like the world and love the world and be in the world and be like the world and walk like the world and talk like the world. He's saying, no, I'm going to start my discourse by telling you no, and I'm going to end my discourse by telling you no. Absolutely not. You will know by their fruit. And then he goes on, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the repetition of Lord, Lord, again, is not poetic and it's not a unnecessary redundancy. 
Many of you have probably read Isaiah 6. You know, in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw also the Lord high and lifted up in his train, filled the temple above him, stead the seraph, and each one having six wings, with two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they did fly, and one cried unto the other, What? Holy, holy, holy. That repetition, the triagion, three time holy. When a Jew wants to emphasize something in Jewish literature, he repeats himself. He repeats himself. That's why we have in the book of Proverbs and in the book of Psalms something that we call Hebrew parallelisms. I'll make one up for you. The wicked shall not dwell in the land, the wicked shall be cut off. He's saying the same thing twice. He just changes the last verse to make it a little different to add emphasis. The idea is in Hebrew mindset, in the, in the Hebrew mindset, when you want to emphasize something, you repeat, you repeat, you repeat, you repeat. And so what Jesus is saying here is not everyone who emphatically declares me to be Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. This is not a person who really doesn't do anything. He's saying, no, not everyone who emphatically confesses me to be Lord will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well... If Jesus is telling us, and he is, that we can't know whether or not someone's going to heaven by the emphasis they give in their confession, then how can we know that we or anyone else has truly been born again? This is what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Aha. Uh -huh. This is so very important. So the evidence that you're going to heaven, and I want you to understand this because it's going to contradict what most modern evangelists have told you. The evidence that you're going to heaven is not one time in your life you prayed a prayer and were sincere. We could go to every tavern within a hundred miles and find all kinds of people that prayed that same prayer with and would vouch for their same degree of sincerity. You want to know, are you Christian? Then answer the second part of this verse. Do you do the will of the Father in heaven? Maybe you're a brand new believer. My question to you is, are you believing and trusting in Christ? You say yes. I go, have you begun your journey? The God who began a good work, is he continuing it? Are you started? Do you have a desire that you've never had before to know what the will of the Father is? Are you striving and learning and growing and seeking to be involved in that will, to do that will, to find out what He wants and to make it a reality in your life? If you say no, then could it be that you have an empty confession? Now again, young people, I don't want to throw upon you something that you can't bear. Even the most godly men struggle with the will of God. Because as you grow, you do become more submissive to His will, but then the demands of His will become greater and greater and greater. But I want you to know something. If you've supposedly been converted, but you're, you have no sense, and I don't mean in your heart, I mean you actually do not pick up a Bible. 
you don't think about the will of God and you don't desire to know the will of God. You just live like everybody else. And you're not growing in obedience and you're not seeking to submit and you're not making two steps forward and three steps back and struggling against sin and losing sometimes and winning sometimes. If the course of your life has not changed since this, since this supposed confession of faith of yours, then there's little evidence to say that any part of it was genuine. And if you began well, running well, and then fell away and stayed away, it's evidence that your faith was false from the very beginning. Again, because he who began a good work in you, if he did, will continue it until the end. Now, In verse 22, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? You know, this is frightening because it actually just seems to point out so many TV preachers today. Now, I want you to think about something, how wrong this is, what this person is saying. Let's let's put a hypothetical situation. It's never going to happen. OK, it is never going to happen, but it's a hypothetical situation. Let's say that a genuine Christian, I mean, truly a believer in Christ. Dies. On the day of judgment stands before Christ and Christ says, depart from me, I never knew you. The argument that was used here, would a genuine believer use that argument? Would a genuine believer say, but Lord, I prophesied in your name. I did miracles in your name. Lord, I cast out demons in your name. You got to let me in. Would a genuine Christian talk that way? He wouldn't, would he? Maybe a genuine Christian would talk like this. Lord. Let all men be liars, but you are true. Lord. I, I thought that I had abandoned all hope in self and all hope in works and religion. I, I thought I clung to your person and the work you did for me on Calvary. You see the difference? This person, when the push comes to shove, automatically it is revealed they're not trusting in Christ. They're trusting in ministry and what they did what they could do, what God owed them. The genuine Christian trusts in Christ alone. Let me put it this way. If you were to come up to a genuine Christian who was mature in the faith. And you said to them. You are such a good person. You are the best person I've ever met in my life. You are just so good. If anyone's going to go to heaven, you will because you're so good. You know what the response will be of that Christian? They'll throw up. And then they'll say, fly from me. Depart from me. No, no. I, if I died right now, I would go to heaven for only one reason. Two thousand years ago, the son of God shed his blood on a tree for me. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. Not unto us, not unto us, but to him alone be the glory. Their only boast, their only hope is Christ. Are you that way? 
Are you that way? Now we go on and look what he says. And then I will declare to them. To these people who professed faith in Christ. They. They bore no fruit showing that they had no faith, that there had been no transformation. He professes to them. I never knew you. Now, remember what we talked about in Revelation 3.20? That if Christ came into the church in Laodicea, the evidence that He truly came into them would be that they would begin to fellowship with Him and walk with Him and commune with Him. Listen to what He's saying here. He's saying, You confessed My name. I never knew you. You didn't walk with Me. You didn't call upon me. You didn't commune with me daily. You didn't meet at my doorstep. You didn't listen to my will. You didn't follow me. Did I just describe you? You know, if I went to the White House tonight and stood at the front gate, I'm sure a guard would meet me there. Rightfully so. Our president is in the White House. And, and the guard stops me and he goes, what are you doing? And I say, oh, don't worry. Um, I know Barack Obama. I know President Obama. I know him personally. Is that really going to impress the guard? Not really, is it? I mean, you know. Just one more lunatic to lock up. That's all it is. But what happens if President Obama comes out of the White House and looks at the guard and says, hey, stop. I, I know him. That's Paul Washer. Come, come on. Come on, Paul. Are things going to change? So it's not so important that I say I know Barack Obama. What's important is, does Barack Obama know me? Let's take this over here. Jesus, I know you. And Jesus responds. I don't know you. I don't know you. And what he means there. We didn't walk together. We weren't friends. I wasn't your master. You weren't my disciple seeking to imitate me in everything. Calling upon me, trusting in me, friendship with me. No, no, no. I never knew you. And then he says this. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. Now, what is he saying? Now, listen, this is so important. The word lawlessness is actually in the Greek. It's a it's a negative particle. Ah, meaning no and namas law, no law. And what Jesus is saying is this. Depart from me, those of you who emphatically called me Lord, but you lived as though I never gave you a law to obey. You called me Lord, Lord, why do you not do what I say? Did you see that in this? He's saying, 
Depart from me, you who called me Lord and confessed me and you called yourself my disciples, but you lived as though I never gave you a law to obey. You lived as though I never gave you wisdom to follow, precepts to match, nothing. Depart from me. I just described evangelicalism in the West. If I walked up to someone and said, you believing in Jesus? Yep. Are you doing the Father's will? Oh, you're one of those legalists. Everybody knows it's just faith. Yeah, it is just faith. But faith is the result of a transformed heart that has new affections. I'll hear Christians today, or <laughs> professing Christians, and I'll, I'll start talking about some of the commandments of Christ. And I've heard them say, look, that's legalism. That's bondage. I'm going, what? what? Where did you get these definitions? It's legalism and bondage to obey the commands of Christ? Well, they're just putting us in bondage and breaking our freedom. And Christ came to make us free. Free to do what? Free to disobey Him? One time, a guy, I was giving a lecture in Europe, and he started talking about the bondage of God just wants to put all the people in this moral bondage. And I said, okay, young man, you, you made the call in front of this congregation, I'll make the response. You're saying God's law, God's will, puts you in bondage and restrains you from doing all the things you want to do. Well, let's just look at God's law for a moment. Let's see, uh, don't steal. Uh, don't murder. Don't lie. Take your, do not take your neighbor's wife. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because He gives you every breath. Um, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, young man, tell me, what kind of person are you if these kind of laws you hate and want to break them? Now let me ask you a question. When someone asks you, are you following the commandments of Christ? Are you seeking to be a disciple? And that sounds foreign to you? Then just what have you believed? Because Jesus said that on that day he would say, depart from me, those of you who called yourself my disciples, who confessed me as Lord, and, the, and yet you lived as though I never gave you a law to obey. Now again, obeying law, not even, not even obeying Christ's word, in the sense of his ethical command, saves us. It is faith in the person and work of Christ. But again, you will know them by their fruits. Those who've been changed will want to do as David did, to desire God's law, to desire his word, to know his precepts, to find wisdom in them, to say that your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How can a young man keep his way pure? Is by keeping your word. I love your word. You've exalted your word with your name. But in modern Christianity in the United States of America, believe in Jesus and don't bring to me that legalism. Because everyone does what is right in his own eyes until the day when it all stops and judgment starts. Where are you? Where are you? God asked Adam that. Adam, where are you? Some skeptics say that's a denial of the omniscience of God. No, it's not. It's the condescension of God. 
God knew exactly where Adam was. The problem is Adam didn't know where Adam was. Where are you? Remember what I said. Put this all in context. The Christian life looks like this. If a person says they have trusted in Christ and are saved, but the rest of their life is a flat line, you know, flat lines mean you're dead. There's no progress in the faith. There's no growing in godliness. There's no transformation. There's nothing. That's a false conversion. If a person says that they were transformed and they grew like this, they're proud and deceived. Nobody grows like that. But if the Christian says this, I have come to trust in Christ and I can see changes in my life that he is making through blessing, through teaching, through discipline. My life sometimes is three steps forward, two steps back. The Christian life will look like this. It won't look like this. And it won't look like this. It'll look like this. At any given moment, it could look like it's going up. At any given moment, it could look like it's going down. But when you look at it over the full course, it just keeps getting higher. Are you progressing? Are you maturing? Are you growing in sanctification? Have you fallen? But when you fell, you couldn't remain that way. And God got you back up again and kept you going, cleaning you off, changing you. Or are you just a flatliner? Heaven. If you ever met anyone that says, why no, I would rather go to hell. <laughs> you see, that's what political theory is all about. Don't you understand? Political theory is all about utopia. How can we make a utopia? Everybody wants to go to heaven. Do you understand me? Everybody wants to go to heaven. The problem is most people don't want God to be there when they get there. The question is not, do you want to go to heaven? The question is not, do you want to escape hell? The question is, through the preaching of the word and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, do you desire Christ? Do you want Christ? And does that passion drive you so that it is noticeable? Does it leak through your skin? Can people see it? Are you born again? Are you? Again, I will not manipulate you with lights, vain invitations. I beg you to come to Christ. I beg you to come to Christ. And you do that not by taking my hand or praying a prayer. You do it by repenting of your sins. Do you see your vile condition? Good. Do you hate the sin you once loved? Good. Do you desire to be free from the bondage of sin? Good. You lack one thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you believe, your life will begin to change. But if you say you believe and your life does not change, you have believed in vain. Seek the Lord. It is not, it is not I who need to tell you you are saved because you did what I told you. You must seek the Lord and cry out to Him and believe on His Son until the Spirit of God reveals to your heart. The Spirit of God tells you you are born again. And so, I'll do what is so hard to do. 
I'll leave you to God now. And we'll see what he does with you. Maybe he will have mercy. And show you his son. And you'll leave this place. A new creature. Let's pray. Father, I come before you and I pray, Lord. Pray, dear God, that you would work. Convert. Lord, transform. Restore. Renew. Give assurance to those who are truly Christian but doubt their salvation, Lord. And those who have assurance and yet are false converts, take that assurance away. And fill them with terror of their condition. And give them hope that if they call upon Christ, He will not turn away from them. In Jesus' name.